Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would, by your spirit, illumine our hearts and minds to understand and to believe and to live according to your word. Father, bless us, bless those who are, are listening and watching at home. Father, I pray that uh, families would be attentive and give attention to your word preached. And Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts, work in our body. Lord, that which is pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. There are three particular sins that plague the work of elders. And by elders, I'm speaking broadly of both pastors and elders, though I do think that those are two different offices with different roles in the church uh, with a lot of overlap. Um, those three sins, those sins that pastors and elders uh, and temptations that we struggle with are laziness, uh, ambition for worldly gain, and lust for power. Those three things, I think, um, summarize some of the primary temptations of the work of the eldership. And so this passage warns elders against those sins, and in opposition to them, exhorts them to voluntary attention rather than laziness and uh, an eagerness for the work rather than um, seeking it for worldly gain, and moderation rather than oppressive lording over the flock. Uh, those are the antidotes to those sins presented in this passage. Uh, those are all very convicting if you've served as a pastor or elder in the church. And they are all indeed the sins that we are prone to commit when we're in office or essentially when we bear any responsibility in any realm, but certainly in, uh, also in the eldership. Uh, for some reason, it's easy for people to think they would be prone to laziness or lording it over anywhere but the church, but uh, the human heart is wicked and it happens in the church. Uh, as frequently, perhaps more frequently than uh, other places. 
So before we elaborate on each of those, let's step back and consider the context of the letter. As I've said throughout this series um, of sermons on the Apostle Peter's letter, he's trying to encourage Christians who are in the midst of persecution. He does not want the fire of persecution to lead to bitterness toward God, but rather he wants it to be understood as a, actually as a blessing from God. It's the same path that Jesus Christ traveled. Um, why then at the end of this letter does he turn to exhort the elders? Well, because the apostle Peter knows that while the people are suffering persecution, the elders who are tasked with shepherding those brothers and sisters on a daily basis are then feeling double weight. They're feeling double weight, the task that they have to do. They, they too are suffering persecution themselves. And on top of that, they have, as the Apostle Paul said of himself, the daily pressure of concern for all the churches or the daily pressure of concern for all the members of the church. Uh, in the case of elders and pastors, they have the primary concern of the local body. But don't forget that elders and pastors also have to have in mind the church broadly speaking, right? It's not just the local body that they have voice in and authority in. It's the church broadly. They have to think beyond the local body to the health of the whole presbytery and beyond that to the health of the whole church beyond just our own denomination. So the apostle Peter knows that these men need encouragement. They are feeling the heat of following Christ personally, and on top of that, they see and know that the sheep for which they are responsible, um, that they love, they are suffering, right? And, and when the going gets tough, that's when uh, those sins that I mentioned at the outset of the sermon afflict the elders of the church, right? Peter knows this. He betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ in the heat of battle. Right? Those last hours of Christ's life, when things were so intense, that's when, that's when the Apostle Peter gave in to temptation. So now, Peter, the experienced one, turns to these elders and exhorts them with great seriousness to be careful about their hearts in this work. He does so, uh, as the text says, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Right, a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter lowers himself to the same rank as these elders, right, though he is an apostle. Right, he designates himself a witness to the sufferings of Christ so that the people will know that what he says in the letter about suffering is the fruit of having been with Jesus Christ and having seen Jesus' own suffering. Right? And, he, and then he reminds them of the hope that he has as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, that church triumphant, right? the consummation of the kingdom of Christ that fills the hearts of all faithful Christians, that hope that we have of all things being set in order. And then he exhorts. The first temptation for elders is laziness. Have you ever seen the animals of a lazy farmer? Right? They suffer. Right? They're sick. 
Uh, they have bloated bellies from malnutrition. They stink. Have you ever observed the, the house of someone who is lazy? Right? Clutter, dishes fill the sink, dirty, unrepaired, or more likely half-repaired things all over the place. And uh, there's barely a place to sit. Right? Have you observed the children of a lazy mother or father? Um, how, do, how, how do I describe them? They're unclean, they're undisciplined, they're untaught and unhappy, generally. Result of lazy elders in a church is similar to that. The sheep of the flock will be malnourished, they'll be sick, they'll be left to themselves, they'll be undisciplined, they'll be unkempt, they'll be uh, unhappy. And like sheep who do not have a shepherd, the sheep, when they are neglected, fall into danger. Uh, They stumble and fall and return to patterns of sin that um, they claim to have left behind because the shepherd has abandoned the sheep. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Right? Distressed and dispirited. Dis- distressed, anxious, and unmotivated. Right? When shepherds do not shepherd, the sheep become distressed and dispirited. They become anxious and depressed. A husband who is lazy and neglects his wife will have a distressed and dispirited wife. Right? A father or mother who is lazy and neglects his or her children, will have distressed and dispirited children. Boss who is lazy and neglects his employees will have distressed and dispirited employees. Right, And so elders who are lazy and neglect their church members will have distressed and dispirited children. We often, we often think that it is benevolent to give our employees or our children or our church members space. And to a certain extent, that may be true. One can be too close. One can be too heavy-handed, too much of a disciplinarian to the point where your troops become discouraged and lethargic, right? But, But it is also true that neglect or too much distance or Uh, continually making the judgment call that people don't want us involved, that we're meddling, that will lead to a distressed and dispirited people. And insecure men struggle with that all the time. Whether or not to say anything, whether or not to show interest, whether or not to exhort or just give people space and hope the Lord works. Well, the fact of the matter is the Lord wants to use you as his instrument, elders. And that's how he works. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Right? He saw that they were sheep without a shepherd and he was like, I'm not going to be a bad shepherd. I'm going to teach many things. I'm going to exhort to many things. I'm going to talk to the rich young ruler. I'm going to tell him which direction he needs to go. And so Jesus begins to teach many things. He, the almighty God who created all things visible and invisible, grabbed a piece of chalk and a chalkboard and just started to teach. 
the Word of God, what is right and true and honorable. And so Peter says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. Do the work of shepherding. Make sure the sheep have water, that they have food, that they have pasture, that they have protection from wolves, that they have medicine, that they have shelter. Um, Use that rod and that staff to bring back the straying, and as Jesus did, teach them many things, both with your mouth and with the example of your life. Right? The elders are to do this work of shepherding and oversight, it says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. It is the will of God that those who have been set apart by the laying on of hands and ordination will not do their work begrudgingly. They should not, and they cannot do their work begrudgingly. They shouldn't be the kind of man who complains about a meeting or who complains about an opportunity to preach or teach. Right? They should be the kind of men who are aware of their calling, aware of their task, aware of the great God they serve and the needs of the flock that they oversee. They shouldn't have to be forced to do this work. The work of shepherding is, is not some sort of afterthought for them. Right? It is what they think about even as they do the work that provides for their livelihood. Right? They think, think of how pathetic it is, and I've had to exhort myself and others in this way. When you have to remind a father to be a father to his children. How shameful. Right? How pathetic when you have to remind a mother to be a mother. Right? Imagine a man who witnesses his wife go through Nine months of agonizing pregnancy, then labor, then sleepless nights as she nurses, who gives himself to entertainment. She's out in the field, so to speak, making sure her little lamb doesn't die, and he's inside on his comfy chair watching, you know, bloopers of Seinfeld. Or he's dropping into his virtual world when his wife is tenaciously (laughs) grappling with the real world. That's tragic. And it is tragic because that man is forgetting what God has made him to be in giving him a wife and children. So too, it is tragic when someone called, trained, elected, set apart to shepherds God's flock has to be reminded or even compelled to do his work. Right? They should voluntarily, with a happy heart, with an eye at God's calling, engage in the work of shepherding the flock. They should look for opportunities to talk with the sheep. They should be thinking about the ministries of the church even even on a Tuesday evening. Calvin says, They who seek to do no more than what constraint, constraint compels them do their work formally and negligently. The elder who just shows up to session meetings to vote is doing his work formally and negligently, right? He thinks that he is a decision maker rather than a shepherd. He does not want to get dirty. He does not want to uh, have to deworm his sheep. He does not want to have to wake up at four in the morning to help that mama sheep deliver her babies, 
And that is indeed one of the ways that I have seen laziness in elder boards. There are those who want formally to be an elder but do not have any sense that they have to get close to the members of the church. Shepherding the flock of God does involve session meetings and budget presentations, right? But there is much, much more, right? May the Lord give us, and I think he has given us, the kind of elders who are terrible at budget presentations, but who know their people, right? Who pray for their people, who exhort and protect and teach and go after the straying of their people. Secondly, the Apostle Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. There's some people There's some people that will not do anything unless they are paid to do it. Or there's some tangible benefit that they'll receive in engaging in that work. Are you that way? Do you find it hard to be motivated to get to a church work day because really there's nothing in it for you? I mean, some people are motivated by a jelly donut. I'm one of them. But there's nothing in it for you other than a clean church building that you're not in very often anyway. Now, let me use myself as an example for a minute, though it goes against my own judgment. I remember working for years in the church while I was working part-time and, and trying to get a doctorate um, without getting paid to do that work. For years, and I wouldn't have it any other way, right? I, I was so happy to be serving the Lord and spending time with men that I deeply respected and doing something that had eternal consequences and wasn't just about my vanity and composing art music. I was so thankful to be doing that. I ran a blog for World Magazine for years without compensation because I thought it honored God to fight against gender-neutral Bible translations. Right? And, and it took up a lot of time. It took up time. Um, it took time away from my wife and my family. I created and maintained for over a decade without pay a website for two theologians because I thought those two theologians had a lot to say that was beneficial to the church at the moment. Right? And now, Now, the worker is worthy of his wages, that is sure, but you find out a lot about a man by what he gives himself to without being paid to do it. That's where you find out a lot about a guy. If you are the kind of man who must be compensated before you are motivated, you won't be a good elder. You will not be a good elder. Um, If compensation is the only thing that makes you eager, that indicates that you are likely fond of sordid gain right? Are we eager for the glory of Christ? Right? Are we eager for the growth of the church? Are we eager for the spread of the gospel? Are we eager for the ministry and, and matured, maturing ministry um, toward our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we eager for the salvation of our neighbors? Are we eager for the word of God to be protected from greedy companies? Are we eager for the work of the diaconate? Are we eager for uh, the work of the eldership? Or are we eager for our own wallet and our own stomach? 
That's the question. After explaining to the Corinthians that those who labor in the gospel should be paid, right? So the Apostle Paul comes in and says the worker, you know, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Worker's worthy of his wages. The Apostle Paul then says this about his not being paid. He says, but I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So what he's saying is, I'm glad I wasn't paid because I want to be able to boast. And if you paid me, my boast is gone. But I preach because I'm under compulsion to preach. That compulsion, that compulsion is what a calling to an office in the church uh, should yield. The compulsion to preach the gospel was the Apostle Paul's primary motivation. He's the kind of man who felt joy in his duty before God. He did not need to be paid for it. Now, enough on that. Third, the Apostle Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. The kind of authority that lords over those given to him by God, and notice that, that um, there is an allotment. God gives over, gives char- gives. A, an allotment, a charge uh, to um, those who lead in his church. But the kind of authority that lords over those given to him by God likes to use the means he has at his disposal, the preaching of the word, church discipline, private exhortation, rebuke, to vent their own private revenge or to carry their point by mere violence and Outwearying of those that oppose them. That's what Nisbet says in his, his um, commentary. Let me say that again. The, those who lord over their, their authority like to vent their own private revenge, so everything becomes about revenge. And, or to carry their point by mere violence and outwearying of those that oppose them. So it's just not, not being able to lose a battle, Right? Every time somebody opposes you, come back and just weary them with counter-argument. You just counter-argue them into the ground. In other words, the pastor or elder who uses his legitimate charge, he does have authority to whack down people for no good purpose, but only for his own selfish purpose, is using his authority to lord it over others. Many Christians now are accusing our civil authorities of acting in this way, right? Particularly governors who have given stay-at-home orders or who have forbidden the assembly of Christians, Jews, and Muslims for worship, right? In the next breath, we say that the states of this nation are governed uh, by the people and the governor has no such power, right? And we are all in the middle of this debate right now. Although all my friends, and it seems everybody in this church, has fallen in a different place than I have. Uh, Does the government have the ability to issue stay-at-home orders? 
complicated question that Facebook debates can't really get to the bottom of. Okay? Does the government have the ability to forbid worship if that order applies equally to any large gathering? Not just to Christian churches. Again, it, it appears they can't, but it is a, a question that has to be debated. Does the government have the ability to forbid solely Christian worship? Absolutely not. Right? Not at all. And those governors that tried to forbid particularly Christian worship would fall into this category of lording over the people. Right? Of using their position as a way of afflicting that which they hate, which is Christians. That would be wrong. That would be evil. That would be unrighteous. And were that the case in our state... I would hope that we would have a groundswell of fierce reaction and opposition. But here's my concern, right? We live in an age, and perhaps it's not at all unlike any other age, where authority is hated. Why do I always say this? Why am I always, say, why am I always annoying you by saying this, right? Why do I always make this claim? Because I've worked as a pastor for nearly two decades, and time and time again I've seen the authority of the church, the authority of those who have a charge allotted to them from God, I've seen the authority of the church thrown off as if it were nothing. Here's what I've seen. The minute an elder or pastor exercises his God-given duty to privately and publicly exhort a person, people clutch their pearls and say, how dare you? An elder goes to a man and tells him that he must discipline his children. And nine times out of ten, he excuses his behavior and then resents the attention that those fathers in the faith have given him. You, you tell a homeschooling mom that her children are proud. And rather than working to win the next spelling bee, she should make her kids work and get sweaty and dirty. And she considers that you've betrayed everything excellent and good. Right? Tell, tell, tell one of those defy tyrants men or women that they have to wear a mask into Costco. A private business that in other contexts we, should, we would say can do whatever they want to do and should be able to do whatever they want to do as far as who comes in their business and who doesn't. Well, you know, tell, tell a defy tyrant's man, or particularly a woman, you know, to wear a mask into Costco. And Costco's customer service lines are going to be getting a bunch of proud Christians calling Costco's decision fascist draconian, right? A threat to freedom. <laughs> so, in addition to asking right questions and seeking answers, what we are seeing in the Christian church today is a deep-seated pride that is perfectly willing to team up with godless libertarians who hate authority. Yeah, I understand that individual rights are important. 
right? But individual rights must have a place for genuine authority because all authority is from God. And in throwing it off, ultimately, we throw off God's authority. What we're seeing today is the skirts of the church are being lifted. That's what's happened the past eight weeks. The skirts of the church have been lifted. And what's being exposed is you can't tell me what to do. That's what's being exposed. You can't tell me what to do. That sort of attitude. And that perfectly fits with my experience as a pastor over the last two decades. Perfectly fits. That is the church. You cannot tell me what to do. We have all become rugged individualists in the Reformed American church. We care more about whether we can conceal carry than we do about sharing the gospel. Pastors and elders have the unenviable job of having to keep watch over the souls of people who do not want to have their souls watched over. And so, to get to my point, there is almost no way in which authority today is ever viewed in any other way than lording it over. All authority is seen as being heavy-handed. Even when elders and pastors are faithful and even gentle, our rebel hearts insist that they are lording it over us. Right? This must be said, dear brothers and sisters, the elders and pastors of the church have a charge over you in the Lord, and if they speak to correct you, that is not lording it over you. Oh, I mean, it could be, right? It could be that an elder is seeking to take his revenge out against you because you have personally offended him. Elders must continually examine their hearts in that. But dear brothers and sisters, just as wives have to learn to obey their husbands in everything, so we have to learn to yield to authority. Right? Authority is not always bad. And even bad authority must be submitted to. Let me say that again. Even bad authority must be submitted to. Every father is a bad father. Every husband is a bad husband. That does not take away his authority or his office. The only good father is the heavenly father. Right? The only good father, the only good authority, the only unblemished authority is the father. Here's what Calvin says on 1 Peter 2.14. Now imagine anybody today in the Christian church saying anything like this without being considered a lunatic, a traitor, and a Mennonite pacifist. He says this, It may be objected here and said that kings and magistrates often abuse their power and exercise tyrannical cruelty rather than justice. Such were almost all the magistrates when this epistle was written. To this I answer that tyrants and those like them do not produce such effects by their abuse, but that the ordinance of God ever remains in force, as the institution of marriage is not subverted, though the wife and the husband were to act in a way not becoming them. However, therefore, 
Men may go astray, yet the end fixed by God cannot be changed. Were anyone again to object and say that we ought not to obey princes who, as far as they can, pervert the holy ordinance of God and thus become savage wild beasts while magistrates ought to bear the image of God? My reply is this, that government established by God ought to be so highly valued by us as to honor even tyrants when in power. There is yet another reply still more evident that there has never been a tyranny. I mean, think of this last statement now. No, no Christian in America, no pastor, no elder would ever say this. And yet here's Calvin saying it in a much more high-stakes situation than we've ever been in. He says that there has never been a tyranny, nor can one be imagined, however cruel and unbridled, in which some portion of equity has not appeared. And further, some kind of government, however deformed and corrupt it may be, is still better and more beneficial than anarchy. Right? He's, he's saying, like, there's, you can get the most tyrannical government over you, and there's still some good about it. So, you, you supporting Hitler now? Dion, is that what you're doing? I mean, it's radical what he says, isn't it? And Calvin was writing that during a time when France was particularly targeting Protestant and Reformed Christians. If his tyrant detector was at about a 10, ours should be at about a, a half of a point. There's decadence in our defiance. There's so much decadence in our defiance. But here's my point. We are so bodacious today that if anyone tells us even to wear face masks in their business because they have concerns, we say they are lording it over us. This is the context in which elders and pastors have to minister. Happy, happy, joy, joy. This is the attitude of the church in which elders and pastors have to minister. And, and what we have thrown in our faces, no matter how gentle our correction to people, what we have thrown in our faces is that we are lording it over people. Lording it over us. I can't believe you would say that, that my children are proud. There's so much we need to learn about authority and submission. And yes, benevolent leadership that has genuine and godly concerns for the good of the sheep. Right? So, you know, there's so much we have to learn about that. There's so much I think we have to learn about what, what Scripture commends to us, particularly Peter the Apostle, but the example of Jesus Christ. And the example of Jesus Christ before or Pilate is, in, is hugely informative about our position toward authority. Well, so much for that. Let's turn now to the final section of our text. The apostle concludes with this encouragement for the elders and pastors, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
There's a chief shepherd whose name is Jesus Christ. It is not that he is the only shepherd, but he has, in his care for the church, given real authority to under-shepherds who serve at his command. That chief shepherd will award an unfading crown of glory to those elders and pastors who shepherded his flock. And not only the elders and pastors, but all God's people will receive that unfading crown of glory. Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one, only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, do, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So at the end of the race of this life, after we have served Christ and lived in such a way that we uh, sought to honor him above all else, he will give us the victor's wreath. Right? He will give us an unfading crown, a token of honor. And that crown will signify that we are his blood-bought people. We are his younger brothers, his, and we, we are his victorious bride. Right? That is what we receive at the end of this. And what a motivation for, for elders. What a motivation for all Christians. But particularly, what a motivation for elders who serve especially in his church for the sake of those sheep that receive those wreaths and those crowns, right? Life, you know, we, we should live in such a way that we are running for the prize. Serve Christ in such a way that you prove you are seeking for his approval, right? God will richly reward you with, with suffering and with difficult labor in this life, and ease and comfort and honor in the next. That's what you have ahead of you. So let's pray to the Lord and give him praise for his good provision for us in this life and in the next. Let's pray.